0: We're looking at the life of our church in these series of messages here now in January. We started two weeks ago by looking into the future, facing the future in the life of our church and talking about you know what are we going to do, what are we going to become. You know, There are people to be reached, and a lot of different things seem like are against all, all the things that we need to do for church growth. And so we're talking about that today. So we're looking at how can we continue to survive as a church And the culture around us that's so different than what it was when this church was established. And a lot of different things that are going on that affect us and our attendance pattern and other things that take place in the life of our church. Um, Tom Rayner, who was president of LifeWake. That's the head of our Southern Baptist Convention producing material and resources and studying the patterns about church growth and life and all of that. Reminds us that the future of the church in America is really a challenge I think two weeks ago I told you that six to ten thousand churches in the United States die every year. That's a hundred to two hundred uh die each week. Uh but yet we will also remember that in Matthew sixteen, eighteen, when Jesus talked about establishing the church, building it on the rock, uh he reminded us that the church, the bride of Christ, will survive in fact he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so we know that we will ultimately be victorious individual churches might die the church of the Lord Jesus Christ though will not because it's the bride of Christ now we can easily recognize that there are some current cultural issues that present challenges to us in our church life as we seek to grow and reach people one of the obvious things today is that people attend less I mean, we measure attendance now basically by the fact that regular attendance is once a month rather than uh, three or four times a month. This is a holiday weekend; you know, people are gone. You know, any opportunity to travel and be gone, there they are; they're gone. So that people attend less than ever before, people give less than ever before. The percentage. That Christians give to the kingdom of God today is less than Christians gave during the Great Depression of the 1930s. People just give less. It seems like they care less about the church life and about the kingdom of God because this is a postmodern, post-Christian culture that we live in today. Now, as I stated two weeks ago, to get our guidance about how we can overcome our decline at Spring Valley, we can look at uh, the first century church and see that great times of church growth took place in a culture that was pre-Christian and so similar to ours today in many ways. Now, we're not hindered in growing to be a healthy church by external forces. We don't have Uh, The influence of negativity uh, in terms of persecution, ridicule, and that. You don't have to go past people uh, who demand that you do not worship. You don't have to worship in secret. That is not our problem. We are hindered by what's inside, and that's a lack of commitment, an lack of evangelistic urgency, and the failure of the life of the church to make disciples, that is, to grow and produce mature believers. Now, Tom Rainer, that I talked about earlier, who talked about the fact that six to 10,000 churches die a year, is talked about five actions that we have to take, the churches have to look at today, if we're going to thrive by reaching our community. First of all, he says, we must remember our purpose. It seems like in this cult today, a lot of churches have forgotten what their purpose is. Our purpose, in the words of Jesus, is to make disciples, to make disciples. In the Great Commission, that's what he tells us we're supposed to do. Now, we do that by proclaiming the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, calling people to repentance from their sin and to a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we seek to mature them and grow them as mature disciples in Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That is our reason for being here is to make disciples. The second thing Rainer says is we must become houses of prayer. We cannot expect God to do something supernatural in the life of our church if we are not in a supernatural relationship with Him, and that comes through prayer. Oftentimes in the life of our church we are busy, we've got programs, we've got classes, we've got studies, we've got all those kinds of things that take place. But first and foremost we need to be a church of prayer. Now here is the third thing, this might be one of the biggest challenges for you to understand. We must stop seeing the church as a place of comfort and stability in the midst of rapid change. Now, we know that there's rapid change that's taking place everywhere. We're living today at a speed of, of blur and flux. Everything everything is in a chaotic transition state. And, and, and I think what the vast majority of church people, long-time church people in traditional churches like ours think... This is the one place that I can come and things don't change. God doesn't change. The message doesn't change. We don't want the hymns to change. We don't want the order of service to change. I want something stable in my life. I want to live where I can, I want an hour or two a week where I can be protected and I don't have to deal with all that change. And that's led to a lot of the worship wars and other things that have taken place in the life of churches today. What we have to realize is if the church prevails as Jesus said against the gates of hell we don't do it by taking a fortress mindset and staying inside for safety's sake but rather we are on the front lines battering down the gates of hell that's what Jesus intended the church to do so Rayner is right when he says we must stop seeing the church as a place of comfort and stability in the midst of rapid change We have to be on mission. We have to be intentionally challenging the gates of hell. And he promises us that we will prevail. Then number four, he says, we must emphasize evangelism and discipleship. We talk about evangelism a lot. We don't talk about discipleship as much as we do. Reality is most churches today aren't doing a very good job of either one of them. Neither are we. But we have to return to that because that's our mandate. We must emphasize evangelism and we must also emphasize discipleship, bringing people in to know Jesus Christ and then helping them to mature as believers in Jesus. And then we must focus externally rather than internally. That means that we have to remember that we exist for the people who are out there who haven't yet come. Yes, we minister to people inside our church we teach you, you've got Bible study material, you've got classes, you've got opportunities to grow, you've got times of fellowship, you've got opportunities for ministry that this church offers. That's great and you need to be a part of some of that. But at the same time we have to remember that we have to always focus externally. We have to look at this church field of ours that a couple of weeks ago I told you, basically the corridor of 77 down to where it hits 20 and then out 20 towards Camden. That we have 100,000 people in this northeast area. Most of them, about 65% of them, aren't in church. And a state that has about four point eight billion million people in it, 3.6 million of them do not attend church on any regular basis, don't have a relationship with the church. We've got to start focusing externally on those people. See, thriving churches are focused on providing ministry to those outside the church and creating bridges for sharing the gospel. Now you think about the challenges that we face out there. I also find this very interesting that when you look at the church in Acts, and you call it the early church, and we're going to look at two others in the next coming weeks, it's interesting that this church was birthed in a pre Christian culture. We live in a post Christian culture today. But the church was birthed in a pre Christian culture. You see, there was a, it was diverse. In, in many different ways. It was diverse racially. It was diverse socioeconomically. It was diverse in terms of culture. It was also diverse in terms of pluralism, uh, of cultures and philosophies. Any kind of religion you wanted, you could find it in that day. Does that not sound a whole lot like our culture of today? And on top of that, there was a materialistic mindset and moral relativism that said there are no absolute morals. And the church came out with a different message and said, yes, there is. And the church came out and talked about love and forgiveness and talked about uh, compassion and sharing. And in that pre-Christian culture, the early church thrived. And we're going to look at three of them over the next couple of weeks uh, talking about that. And when we talk about the church surviving and thriving... In these days, today, in the culture of our day, you know, we have to stand out and we have to be distinct, and that's the theme of uh, Seth Godin's book entitled "Purple Cow." It's a management book. It's a branding. It's about branding who you are, whether it's your business or whether it's your institution or whether it's your church. Anybody can take this principle, and he says this: that that if you've seen one brown cow, you've seen them all. I think we got a picture of that, don't we? Yeah. Or if you've seen one black and white cow, they all look alike. But you see a purple cow, it stands out. Now, I knew when I read that, I said, you know, that sounds familiar to me for some reason. And there used to be a purple cow restaurant down somewhere off Picking Street, I think, near University. I think it now it's uh, got another name, the Prados, I think it is. But there was a purple cow restaurant. So you remember that. So you're just thinking about that. You remember a purple cow. So he says this. He says, if you've seen one brown cow, one black and white cow you've seen them all. But to be a purple cow that attracts attention. One statement in his book I think has profound implications. If you aren't remarkable you're invisible. If you aren't remarkable you're invisible. See every church needs to paint itself purple in some way. We do too. I'm not talking about fads. I'm not talking about gimmicks. I'm talking about the fact that We are known by something unique that we do for the glory of God and the growth of the kingdom of God so that we don't go by unnoticed in this culture, this community, this neighborhood in which we live. That's a challenge for us. But it was a challenge for the early church as it was birthed. And I want us to look at the church that we find in Acts 2. It's the Jerusalem church, but I'm calling it today the Pentecost church because it was birthed at Pentecost because the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon them and the message that Peter preached. So, Peter's preaching, and he's he's talking about their sins and, and what they need to do, and they cry out, and they say, what do we do to save ourselves? And he said, repent and be baptized. And this is where we pick up the scripture. You're reading your Bible, follow along on the screen or your Bible app, whatever, beginning in verse 40 of Acts 2. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, we don't know how many actually heard the message, but 3,000 heard it and responded to it. That's a pretty good response to that. Then look what happens as the church is formed and developed and begins to take shape now in that culture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And enjoying the favor of all the people. That's an intriguing statement, isn't it? This church, because of what they did and their character and their nature, enjoyed the favor of all the people in that pre-Christian culture. That's interesting. They dared to be different and they were noticed. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the promised Holy Spirit had come. They responded to Peter's sermon, and there were 3,000 who came to know Jesus Christ. Now, what do we see in the life of this church that is profound? I think, first of all, we notice that this church lived with passion. This church lived with passion. Most new churches, church plants do. I would imagine that in 1977, when this church was getting organized out here, and it then finally took shape and was commissioned as a church in 1980, there was a lot of passion. And younger churches, newer churches, church plants grow because people are excited about that and they talk about it and they share that faith. New Christians attract more non-believers so they can share the message because they have discovered a great way of living and they're sharing that in their life. Old Christians, we just kind of get lax in our ways. We take life for granted. We take life for granted. This church took nothing for granted. They lived with passion. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Look at each one of those. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why was it important for them to know the teaching of the Scriptures? It's because the defining characteristic of every church is its doctrine. See, what a church believes determines how a church behaves. If you believe the Bible is the Word of God and it is authoritative, then we won't deviate from that. And we try not to here. We try to live by the Word. If you don't believe that this is the sole authority of the Word of God, then anything goes. And we see that in some of the churches in our culture today. But what a church believes determines how a church behaves. And so we must always teach what the Scriptures say. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia in the Greek. And it basically means partnership or sharing. Now, when we think about fellowship, we we, we probably think about church socials or potluck dinner a Christmas family dinner or whatever. Uh, uh, Just a time to, to fellowship around the table. You know, have a little fellowship. But this concept of fellowship here literally means that they would directly... Related to their commitment to each other in order to fulfill the mission of the church. They partnered together. So, what we find here in this Pentecost church, in this Holy Spirit church, in this Jerusalem church, is a band of red hot believers who banded together in fellowship or partnership to see the mission of God accomplished. And they also lived with passion because they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Why was it so important in this New Testament church that they were devoted to the breaking of bread? They were celebrating and observing the life of Christ and his sacrifice for them. And they remembered that. They came together. They put some of their food aside after they had eaten and then maybe worshiped. Then they came together to worship in a special way as they broke the bread and shared the fruit of the vine. And then they were committed to prayer. They were dedicated to prayer. They believed that their prayer life would move the hand of God. And we have to believe that as well. Nothing supernatural can happen without the supernatural presence of God. This young church knew that they were depended upon and they were devoted to prayer. They lived with passion. You can see it just oozing through the words. You know, you all always usually benefit from The inside of the nine o'clock worship hour, people. One lady came out and she said, she showed me her Bible, that she had it marked there, and I'd preached on that passage several times, and she had written in the margin of her Bible, Robert's favorite passage on the church. And it is. This is my favorite passage on the church. I mean, you look at all the stuff that's going on in the life of the church. Don't you think that would have been a fantastic place to have been in the life of the church? Don't you think it would have been a fantastic church with things that were taking place? Day by day, people were being added to the church. They were fellowshipping together. They were meeting the needs that people had. They lived with passion. And they were noticed. They stood out. And people responded and joined with them. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Now, the second thing we notice about this church is the church lived with power. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. It was an awful church. They were filled with awe. There was a spirit of excitement about what God was doing. That word awe literally means to have a fear. And so they lived in a holy fear of God. They lived in a reverent, respective presence of God. I think they came together as often as they did and they were asking the question, I'm just excited to see what God's going to do today. I think sometimes most people go to church to see who else shows up. We need to have a sense of awe about God and come anticipating meeting and encountering God. So I think the single greatest thing that our community needs is the powerful witness of a church that is totally devoted to its mission, that is totally dependent upon its Messiah, and totally empowered by the true and loving God. That's what we need to be known as. That's our purple cow. And here's the reason why. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 20-21, Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, we get power from God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we can ask or imagine. You know, whatever you can imagine for this church, God can do even more profound than that. See, the early church had power because they were obedient to the empowering spirit of God. And the result was they turned their world upside down for the kingdom of God. And at the same time found favor with all the people. That's fantastic. Then here's the third thing to observe about this church. They also not only live with passion, not only with power, but this church lived with praise. They lived with praise. Verse 46 and 47, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Yeah, you just can't help but read this at least I can't, and feel some kind of energy that comes from this church because it was electric, and and it was contagious, and it was exciting. And the scripture says that they felt it. Everybody observed them. And they had to say, this must be of God. And that's what happens when we praise God. It's just not when we sing, but it's in your Bible study time. It's in your prayer life. You praise God, and there comes a renewal of strength and a restatement of our purpose as His children. The psalmist said, Be exalted, O God, in your strength, and we will sing and praise your power. You know what happens when we're praising God earnestly and devoutly from our hearts? We're admitting that we are but mere human beings, and we don't have the ability to save the world. That we don't have the strength to keep it going and that we don't have the staying power to keep on keeping on, but God does. And that when we're in relationship with Him, then God fills us with what we need. He did in the early church in Jerusalem and He does it in any church which admits His complete dependence upon God. Now I want to make three observations about this church. I think they're very significant. Number one is this. When you read this story, you got to understand that this was a God thing that took place. And so, what God begins supernaturally must operate supernaturally. It was a movement of God that was memorable. What begins supernaturally must operate supernaturally. I think sometimes... We've become so organized in the structure of the life of the church here and churches all over the nation that we're so committee focused and we're so task oriented and trying to get things done that we lose sight of the fact that the church was birthed in the power of the Holy Spirit and they were led by the Holy Spirit and they responded to the Holy Spirit. And that's a supernatural act of God. I think we need to go back more to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the life of our church. And what he says we should do is what we should do. Secondly, when the church functions with God's power, its ministry may be unexplainable. How can you explain this church thriving and growing by thousands and doing these weird things that they did in that pre-Christian culture and seeing lives change for the glory of God and finding favor with all the people in that pre-Christian culture. It it can only be explained by the fact that it's a God thing. It's unexplainable. All we can say is, is God did it. They were totally dependent and reliant upon God. And He worked through them to do miraculous things. It was a God thing. Church growth is a God thing. We need to remember that. And thirdly, when the church ministers with God's power, the results are undeniable. That's why this passage of Scripture on the church is my favorite. It's because the church enjoyed God's blessings because they were committed to the passion, power, and praise that God expected of them. They were able to carry out their mission with excitement and zeal. They were, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were filled with a sense of awe as to what God was doing in their midst. And they looked forward to that every day. Can we ever experience what this, this church did? did he live, live like that? I say yes. If we're not just satisfied with the wonderful past. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to commit ourselves totally to the passion, power, and praise that gripped the first century church. There's a church cathedral built in Seville, Spain in 1401. And a resolution of the people who are part of that church, and they signed it, reads like this. And I think it's a great challenge for us. Let us build here a church so great that those who come after us will think us mad to have ever dreamed of building it. They could be talking about the physical building. But I think the same thing applies to the spiritual building that we're building. The spiritual house of God. Let us build here a church so great in the kingdom of God. That those who come after us will think us mad to have ever dreamed of building it. The early church experienced that. We read about it and we long to have that kind of life in the life of our church. Instead of just longing for it, why don't we commit ourselves totally to God? Why don't we be a church that lives on passion and power and praise and expect God to do something as we commit ourselves totally, obediently unto Him. I talked earlier about churches need to do something purple, have a purple cow experience in their life so that they will stand out and be noticeable. I want to ask you to think about that this coming week about this church. Go so back and read this passage of Scripture, Acts 2, 40 through 47 And think about the fact of what Was their purple cow? What made them, out of all the things you can point out, what made them unique? What made them go noticeable in their community rather than unnoticed? How did they find favor with all the people and proclaim the kingdom of God that was basically against everything in that pre Christian culture? How did they do it in the diversity of that culture? How did they go up against a pluralism of faith? How did they do it in the midst of a tremendously diverse culture? They did it because they had something that was unique about them. I want you to go back and think about what that might be. And then as we introduce the next church next Sunday, we'll talk about this briefly and see what what you think about what it was, okay? Now, let's pray as we close out this time of worship. Father, we thank You that You have given to us new life in Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have given us the church to be a part of, to be on mission with You. Father, I pray that we will accept our life and the life of this church seriously and that we will be on mission for you, that we will, we will seek you and your face earnestly and we will rely upon your power, not our power. We will rely upon your insight through the Holy Spirit and not just ours and that we will give you the praise and glory because out of that we find our power being renewed as we commit ourselves obediently to you and to your purpose. I pray, Father, that we will look towards the future And we will seek to be a church on mission with you so that we can reach our culture, so that we can know the excitement of being obedient to you and seeing your blessings. Father, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ who died to establish the church, who died to establish this church, and that we might take that seriously. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.